How these papers have been placed in sequence will be made manifest in the hearing of them. All needless matters have been eliminated so that a history almost at variance with the possibilities of latter-day belief may stand forth as simple fact. All of the records chosen are exactly contemporary, given from the standpoints of those who made them. We begin with the journal of Jonathan Harker, who was, at the time of its composition, travelling in a distant part of Europe. He was then my fiancé, and his curious account shall form the cornerstone of this narrative which, after due consideration, I have elected to entitle Dracula. From the Journal of Jonathan Harker, the 3rd of May, 1897. England seems so far behind me now, for I am firmly in the East, and the West is but a distant memory. I arrived tonight, upon the dark side of twilight, at the Golden Crone Hotel in Bizritz. The town lies practically upon the frontier, for the Borgo Pass leads from it into Bekovena. The region has had a very stormy existence, and still shows marks of it. It has been scorched and devastated by fire and war. Not that I thought to mention this fact to my charming hostess, a cheery peasant woman whose husband owns this ramshackle boarding house. Herr Englishman! Herr Englishman! Hello! <laughs> you are the Herr Englishman, Mr. Harker? Uh, Jonathan Harker, yes. Welcome. Welcome to the Golden Crone. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Much obliged, I'm sure. Your journey, I think, has been long and a most arduous one. On the contrary, it has been singularly pleasant and enlightening. <laughs> what a truly fascinating corner of the world this is. I am gratified by your words. You are most generous, Herr Englishman. Not at all. Everything has been made ready for you here. Your room... Your comfort. And a letter has been delivered for you also. A letter? Here? Whoever can it be from? That, Herr Englishman, I do not know. And I do not wish to know. At the mention of this mysterious missive, the landlady's earlier, almost effusive, good humour seemed, to my bafflement, rather to evaporate. I went to my room, which was crude, but perfectly comfortable, and where, as she had promised, a letter was waiting for me, propped upon the cracked and speckled mirror. I knew at once from the hand that it was not from Mina, the correspondent from whom I wished to hear more than from any other, but from someone quite unknown to me. When I tore it open, I saw that it was from he for whom I have come to this strange part of the world, my client and host. It read, Herr Harker, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina. A place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one and that you shall enjoy your stay in my so beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. I confess myself rather flattered by this unnecessary piece of hospitality and find that I am looking forward to meeting this evidently unusual man. <sighs> and uh, now to bed, in which I trust I shall sleep soundly, for all that I am at present distracted by the sound of some wild dogs who have set up a fearful howling somewhere rather too close to this hotel. The 5th of May. 
I woke late from an agreeable night's sleep in which I was troubled only slightly by those peculiar dreams with which I have been beset ever since I ventured into this, the wildest and least known portion of our continent. All seemed well enough, however, and I passed a pleasant morning until I was due to depart when, waiting outside the hotel with my valise in hand, I was once again accosted by the landlady. Young hair! Young hair! Good afternoon, madam. <laughs> Might I take this opportunity of thanking you again for what has proved to be a most enjoyable stay? Must you go, young hair, to that terrible place? Oh, must you go? Madam. <laughs> You know that I must. I have business there. My client awaits. However admirable the diversions of this establishment, I cannot, alas, afford to tarry. But do you not know, young hare? Do you not know what day it is? I know the date, but I confess it conveys nothing of any particular significance to me. It is the eve of St. George's Day. And what is that? Do you not know... That tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all the evil things in the world will have full sway. <laughs> Do you not know where you are going? Do you not know what you are going to? Madam, I know only that I have to visit a client and that he is eager for assistance and my company. There is not, so far as I'm concerned, anything more to comprehend than that. Oh, you poor deluded man. What I thought to myself, but did not relay to the lady, was a line that I had read in a book which I had consulted in the British Library before my departure. A work which claimed that every known superstition in the world had gathered in the horseshoe of the Carpathians, as if forming the centre of some great imaginative whirlpool. I beg you, Herr Harker, do not go... I am reluctant, madam, to be discourteous but nothing in the world could prohibit me from travelling onwards. Then take this, Herr Englishman. Take this for your own protection. She reached for a crucifix which hung about her neck and passed it to me. I did not know what to do, for as an English churchman, I have been taught to regard such things as idolatrous. Yet it seemed ungracious to refuse a lady meaning so well and in so hysterical a state of mind. You have one who loves you, back in the country of your birth? Well, yes. I suppose I do. My fiancée, Miss Mina Murray. Then wear this in her name, and for her sake. And before I could say any more, she had slipped the rosary about my neck, bowed her head, and all but fled from the scene back to the safety of her hotel. Moments later, the coach arrived, and... Not now feeling nearly as easy in my mind as is, I like to think, my custom, I boarded it and continued my journey towards the Count. Before us lay a green, sloping land full of forests and woods, with here and there steep hills and crowned with clumps of trees or with farmhouses. There was everywhere a bewildering mass of fruit blossom, apple, plum, pear and cherry. As we drove by I could see the green grass under the trees spangled with fallen petals. Such beauty was soon to fade, however, and be overtaken by shadows. The road was rugged, but we seemed to fly over it with a feverish haste. Beyond the swelling hills rose mighty slopes of forest, up to the lofty sweeps of the Carpathians. As we wound on, the sun began to sink, and the shadows of the evening crept around. Now, by the roadside, I saw many cruciforms, and as we swept by, my companions all crossed themselves. Here and there was a peasant man or woman kneeling before a shrine, who did not even turn as we approached, but seemed in the self-surrender of devotion to have neither eyes nor ears for the outer world. Evening fell. As we ascended through the pass, dark firs stood out against the background of late-lying snow. Sometimes the hills were so steep that despite our driver's haste, the horses could go but slowly and so he lashed them, 
and with wild cries urged them on. Then, through the darkness, I could see a sort of patch of grey light, as though there were a cleft in the hills. The excitement of the passengers grew greater. The coach rocked on its great leather springs and swayed like a boat tossed on a stormy sea. We were entering the Borgo Pass, at the place where the carriage sent by the Count was to meet me. We came then to a shuddering halt. Our driver turned around. Despite the chill of the night, his face streamed with perspiration. There is no carriage here, Herr Harker. You are not expected after all. You must come on to Bukovina. You can return tomorrow or the next day, but not tonight, Herr Harker. Not tonight. During the delivery of this remarkable speech, the horses began to neigh and snort and plunge wildly. Then, amidst a chorus of screams from my fellow passengers, a kalesh with four horses drew up beside us. I could see from the flash of our lamps that the steeds were coal-black, splendid animals. They were driven by a tall man with a long brown beard and a great hat which hid his face. I could see only the gleam of very bright eyes. You are early tonight, I think, my friend. The English hair was in a hurry. That is why I suppose you wished him to go on to Bukovina. You cannot deceive me. I know much, and my horses are swift. Now give me the hare's luggage. Mr. Harker, step aboard. With exceeding alacrity, my bag was handed out and put in the kalesh. I descended from the old coach and entered the new. The bearded driver helping me with a hand which caught my arm in a grip of steel. Then, without a word, he shook his reins, the horses turned and we swept away into darkness. As I looked back, I saw the steam from the horses of the coach by the light of the lamps and projected against it the figures of my late companions crossing themselves. The night is chill, mein Herr, and my master the Count bade me take all care of you. There is a flask of Slivovitz beneath the seat, should you require it. Thank you, sir, but I am refreshed enough for the present. The driver did not reply, and I sank back into my seat and considered my position. I think had there been any alternative, I should have taken it, instead of prosecuting that unknown journey. Curious to know how time was passing, I struck a match and by its flame looked at my watch. It was within a few minutes of midnight. Soon we were hemmed in with trees, which in places arched right over the roadway. Though we were in shelter, we could hear the rising wind. It grew colder and fine powdery snow began to fall, so that soon we and all around us were covered with a white blanket. Then. Born upon the wind, started up the distant howling of wolves. I shuddered, though the driver seemed not in the least perturbed. The journey took on the aspect of a terrible nightmare as we sped on through the gloom, with the howling of wolves all around us. Once we paused, and the driver vanished. Then the howling stopped altogether, and as the moon appeared, sailing through black clouds, I saw to my dismay that we were surrounded by a ring of wolves. They were a hundred times more terrible in the grim silence than ever they were when they howled. I felt a sort of paralysis of fear. Then, to my relief, the driver came back. He seemed wholly unmoved by the sight of the animals, but merely raised his arms in a gesture of command. He spoke no word but hissed through bared teeth. To my astonishment, the wolves fell back, and back further still. A heavy cloud passed across the face of the moon, and we were again in darkness. When I could see once more, the driver was climbing into the kalesh, and the wolves had disappeared. We swept on our way, ascending and ascending, until I became conscious of the fact that the driver was in the act of pulling up the horses in the courtyard of a vast, ruined castle, from whose tall windows came no ray of light, and whose broken battlements 
showed a jagged line against the moonlit sky. The Kalesh stopped. The driver jumped down and held out his hand to assist me. Again, I could not help but notice his prodigious strength. I stood close to a great door, old and studded with iron nails, set in a projecting doorway of massive stone that was much worn by time. As I stood, the driver jumped into his seat and shook the reins. The horses started forward, and they all disappeared down one of the dark openings. I stood in silence, not knowing what to do. Of Bell or Knocker there was no sign. I had begun to feel the hopelessness of my situation sweep over me when I heard a heavy step approaching behind the great door and saw the gleam of a coming light. There was the sound of rattling chains and the clanking of bolts being drawn back. With a loud grating noise as of long disuse, the great door swung open. Within stood a tall old man, clad from head to foot in black. Welcome to my house. Enter freely and of your own will. Come freely. Go safely. And leave something of the happiness you bring. Mm. Mm. Oh, Count, this really is splendid. <laughs> Truly, it's a wonderful spread. <laughs> You enjoy the flesh of the fowl and the glass of toke also. Oh, mm, both are admirable. More than admirable. Are you really certain that I cannot persuade you to join me? I have dined already, and I do not sup. I imagine you must be eager, Count, to speak of that business which has brought me to you. Now, the house in Purfleet has been bought and made ready. Uh, Mr. I think Harker... You are a guest in my country, and in my house. We are a proud people, and we consider hospitality to rank highest of all our virtues. I would not ask you to speak of such things tonight at so late an hour, and after so arduous a journey. Please, I pray you, eat and drink, and be at peace. Uh. Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make. It would certainly seem that there is no shortage of the beasts in the vicinity. I confess the sight and even the sound of them inspires in me a certain disquiet. Ah, but you dwellers in the city cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. I think I see the first dim streak of the coming dawn. You must be tired. Your room is ready, and tomorrow you must sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the afternoon. So, slumber and dream. Good night, Mr. Harker. Good night, my friend. I slept until late in the day, and awoke of my own accord. When I had dressed myself, I went into the room where we had supped, and found that a cold meal had been laid out for me, with coffee kept hot by the pot being placed on the hearth. There was a card on the table, upon which was written, I have to be absent for a while. Do not wait for me. So I set to and enjoyed a hearty meal. When I had done, I looked for a bell so that I might inform the servants, but could not find one. There are certainly odd deficiencies in the house, considering the extraordinary wealth which is all around me. I have not yet seen a single domestic, or heard a sound except the howling of wolves. When I had finished my meal, I looked for something to read. Opening another door, I found a sort of library where, to my great delight, I discovered a vast number of English books, in which I swiftly became engrossed. Uh, Mr. Harker... Oh, Count! I am so sorry. Please forgive me. There is no trespass, and there is nothing to forgive. 
I am glad that you found your way here, for I am sure there is much that shall interest you. These books upon the history and geography and the laws and the political economy of your great nation have given me so many hours of pleasure. Through them I have come to know your England, and to know her is to love her. I long to go through the crowded streets of London, to be in the midst of the whirl and rush of humanity and youth, to share the life of the city, its changes, all that makes it what it is. Yet my spoken English is still poor. In this, my friend, as well as in much else, I look to you for guidance and for expertise. <laughs> but, Count, you speak English thoroughly. <laughs> Thank you for your too flattering estimate. All the same, I trust that you shall rest with me here a while, so that by our talking I might better learn the English intonation. How long, Count, had you in mind? I know there must be many matters of great importance awaiting you in England, your work in the law, and perhaps also a sweetheart. A fiancé, yes. Indeed, indeed. Whoever she may be, she is a most fortunate lady. Now, come, friend Harker, I would hear of that property which you have procured for me. You will sup again? Yes, of course. Uh, I must fetch my papers from my room. Naturally, you must. Count. My friend. This library of yours. Might I be permitted to come here whenever I choose? You may go anywhere you wish in the castle, except where the doors are locked. There is reason that all things are as they are, for we are in Transylvania. Our ways are not your ways, and there shall be to you many strange things. Of course. <laughs> I understand. I would warn you in particular to slumber only in your rooms and not in any other part of the castle. It is old, and it has many memories. And there are bad dreams for those who sleep unwisely. Now, Count, you can see on the map precisely where the property is located. Yours is a large estate. It is named Carfax, and it is situated at the periphery of Purfleet. Where is this Purfleet? How close does it lie to the metropolis? It is a suburb of London, around 15 miles east of the city. And the house itself? Tell me of this place which you have chosen. A large, secluded property, surrounded by a high wall, ancient and built of heavy stone. There are a number of outbuildings, including a deconsecrated chapel. It contains some 20 acres and dates back at its oldest to medieval times. I am glad that it is old. I myself am of an ancient family. It is also, I fear, a trifle gloomy. No matter, for I am not now used to gaiety. My heart, through weary years of mourning over the dead, is no longer attuned to mirth. In that case, Carfax should be ideal. <laughs> Tell me, do I have neighbours in this perfleet? Just one, an asylum. Close by, but hidden behind high walls. You shall hear or see very little of it. An asylum being a place in which the mad are penned. That is so, yes. Your people are too generous to the lunatic and to the idle. Here we would deal with them in far sterner a fashion. Well, no doubt that's true, but we consider ourselves to have grown a little more enlightened concerning such matters in recent years. You are, my friend, naive. But then that condition is a prerogative of the young. 
Count, I see from the correspondence that you also wish to arrange for the transport of a number of boxes to England. That is so. Fifty boxes to be shipped to my new adopted land. Excellent. A Russian schooner named the Demeter is set to transport them. And I gather that your own gypsy people, the Zagani, will bear them from the castle to the port? That is true. Uh, there's also the question of bills of lading. Tell me, Count, purely for the records, what are the contents of these fifty boxes? Later, friend Harker. Later shall all be told. But for now, we have spoken of these things for long enough. I have been informed that your supper is prepared. You've been informed, sir? By your servants? Yes. By my servants. We spoke again, the Count and I, late into the night. As before, he took no food or drink whilst plying me generously with both. There seemed no limit to the Count's curiosity concerning England, and so frequent and intense were his questions upon the subject that our conversation seemed at times to be closer to an interrogation. The motives for his forthcoming journey to my country remained to me opaque, so much does he seem a man of this place. Yet, he appears endlessly fascinated with modernity, quoting extensively from numerous books that he has acquired concerning the newest technology. I am tired as I write these words, and the dawn is almost upon us once again. 7th of May. There is something so strange about this place, and all which is in it, that I cannot but feel uneasy. I wish I were safe out of it, or that I had never come. If there were anyone to talk to, I could bear it. But I am beginning to suspect that there are assuredly no servants here. Save for the Count, I fear that I am myself the only living soul within this place. This morning I slept only a few hours, and feeling that I could not slumber any more, got up. I had hung my shaving glass by the window, and was just beginning to shave when... Good morning, Mr. Harker. Ah! Ah! Count! Forgive my interruption. I, I could not resist an additional visitation. Count! What are you doing in my chamber? My friend, I fear that when startled you cut yourself without meaning to. See, it is trickling, trickling over your chin. It's only a very small scratch. I believe I brought with me some sticking plaster. No. Let me help, friend Harker. Let me be your ideal host. He reached towards me, only to recoil when his hand brushed against the crucifix that had been given to me by the landlady of the Golden Crone. His eyes blazed with fury. Take care. Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. And this is the wretched thing that has done the mischief. It is a foul bauble of man's vanity. He seized my shaving glass, opened the heavy window with a single wrench, and flung out the mirror which was shattered into a thousand pieces upon the stones of the courtyard far below. Count, whatever is the meaning of this? You must be more accommodating, friend Harker, for you are not yet, I think, quite accustomed to my way. And with that, he seemed almost to glide from the room. It was only after he had left that it occurred to me how curious it was that, although he had been standing but a very few inches from my back, I had not spied him in my mirror. Later, I went into the dining room where breakfast was prepared. Of the Count, there was no sign, and I ate alone. Afterwards, I did a little exploring. I went out on the stairs and found a room looking towards the south. The view was magnificent. The castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. 
As far as the eye can reach is a sea of green treetops, with occasionally a deep rift where there is a chasm. But I am not in any heart to describe beauty, for when I had seen the view, I explored further. Doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all of them locked and bolted. This castle is a veritable prison, and I a prisoner. And then, after the Battle of Mahaks, we threw off the Hungarian yoke. We, of the Dracula blood, were amongst their leaders. Ah, but those warlike years are over. Blood is too precious a thing in these days of dishonorable peace. You speak so vividly, Count, of the history of your people. It is almost as if you were present at these events yourself. You are kind to indulge an old man so. Mm, but you seem ill at ease. You seem <laughs> like a little bird whose feathers have been ruffled. I am sorry. No doubt I am pining for home and for Mina. I wonder how much more work there is to be done here. You have the necessary paperwork, and as to the yeah, question of contract... But you I... cannot wish to be leaving. Not so soon. I had thought our business largely concluded. Had you, indeed. On the contrary, I thought us only in its earliest stage. There is still much for us to explore. Um, uh... Friend Harker... I wish you to write letters to your employer and to your fiancé, saying that you will stay with me uh, one month more. A month? Shh, 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 shh. My friend, please do not cross me upon this matter. I shall, you may be assured, brook no refusal. I had no choice but to do as the Count asked. In this place he has complete dominion over me. I must not betray myself, but must work in secret to contrive an escape. Matters are worse even than I had feared, for earlier tonight, after our supper had been concluded, I was gazing from my chamber, or more accurately, from my cell, when I saw a story below me, something moving. It was the Count emerging from his window. To my astonishment, his entire body wriggled through that space, and he proceeded to crawl down the castle wall, like a lizard upon a rock. At first I could not believe my eyes. I thought it some trick of the moonlight, but I kept looking and I saw that it could be no delusion. What manner of man is this? Or what manner of creature is it in the semblance of man? I feel dread overpowering me. I am in fear, in awful fear, and I am encompassed about with terrors. You may think the emphasis an odd one, but the most terrifying element of the Count's impossible behaviour tonight was the startling fact that he was dressed in those same clothes which I had worn upon the night of my arrival in this damned citadel. 16th of May. How long since I last wrote in this journal? Dear God, to what extremes of madness have I been driven? Time in this place seems somehow to run differently than it does elsewhere. This afternoon I fell asleep in the library, dozing in the sun. I took a child's pleasure in defying the Count's injunction, but I was soon to regret my disobedience, for I awoke to find three young women before me, Two dark, one fair. Look at him, 
How fresh she is. How young, how strong. How like an innocent. He wishes for us to kiss him. He longs for our embrace. He wants intimate knowledge of us. Jonathan. Oh, Jonathan. We know that you wake. We can see you peeping at us beneath your hat, closed lids. Who are you? What do you women want? Our names are long since lost to antiquity, to the dust of ages. Our earthly purpose was superseded centuries past. Now we are appetite incarnate. <gasps> we are pure desire. And what we desire tonight, <laughs> dear Jonathan, <laughs> is you. Only you. No, this is surely a dream. <laughs> Some manner of waking nightmare. Yet you desire us, do you not? You see our red lips and our sharp teeth and our voluptuous lusts, and you wish surely to partake. Uh, madam, please, I am betrothed. I have a fiancé. I. Hush, I. Uh, hush now. Uh, no. No, no, I, I dare not. Stop this! He is mine. How dare you touch him? How dare you cast eyes upon him when I have forbidden it? We wished only to play. Only to stroke. What do you know of such games? You have never loved. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me, friend Harker. You should not have slumbered here. Yet I too can love. I have before, and I shall again. Enough, Count, of your envy. What of us? What are we to have tonight? Here, here is your repast. Dear God, what is that? What is it that squirms within the folds of your cloak? Feast well, my dears. Eat this in memory of me. <laughs> no! No! Please! Please! Let me not be going mad! What? What is this? My friend. It is but a clear, bright Transylvanian afternoon. You must have grown drowsy and let yourself be overwhelmed by bad dreams. I... The things I saw. The horror. Merely tricks of the imagination. Only nightmares. And yet, it was all so horribly visceral. It shall fade as to all such hallucinations. I happen to be passing your chamber. I have a small boon to beg of you. What is it, Count? I wish you to write three letters. Letters? To your fiancé, uh, the lady's name escapes me, I wish you to give them the following dates. June the 12th, June the 19th, and June the 29th. Then... Dear God, I think that you're telling me the span of the rest of my life. <laughs> Write the letters, friend Harker, and speak no more. Monster! Fiend! Fiend! Give me my child! Who? Give me my baby! Count! Who is that woman? Her name is unknown to me. Besides, it is scarcely significant. You need understand only that she is a peasant from the village and that, like all of her kind, she is a coward and a fool. No. Surely. Surely she is the mother of the baby from my dream. I told you, Jonathan Harker, not to speak to me again. Have no fear. This matter will be 
resolve. <laughs> there, as I promised, all has been tidied and made neat. Now, you will write for me those letters? Yes, Count. I suppose I shall. The 29th of June. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. I am far from certain in what manner these last weeks have been passed. I have slept, and I have dreamed, and I have witnessed many strange things. And today, I think, is meant to be the day of my death, for it is the date of my last letter. Earlier, I left my chambers, and, made reckless, I fancy, by the certainty of my imminent extinction, roved once more about the castle, and discovered a dark, tunnel-like passage. At the end of it, I found that I stood in an old ruined chapel, now used as a graveyard. The ground had recently been turned over, and the earth placed in fifty great wooden boxes. In one of them, lying upon a pile of newly dug soil, lay a thing which filled my very soul with horror. There was the Count, but looking as if his youth had been half renewed, for the white hair had been changed to dark iron grey, the cheeks were fuller, and the skin ruby red underneath. He was I realized, gorged, simply gorged with blood. He lay like a filthy leech, exhausted with his repletion. This, then, was the being that I was helping to transfer to London, where, perhaps for centuries to come, he might satiate his lust. I know not quite what I meant to do. For at that moment, his eyes opened and fell upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. <laughs> the effect upon me was instantaneous, and I fear that I fled from the sight. He has yet to follow. I suspect in some fashion that he cannot until it is entirely dark. I must try now to escape. I shall scale the castle wall. I shall find a way free from here. If I fail, then at least God's mercy is better than his, and the walls of this place are steep and high. At their foot a man may sleep as a man. Goodbye, all. Goodbye, dear Mina. It grieves me even now to note that Jonathan was not to write again in his journal for many months, not until a great deal of further tragedy had come to unfold. And so, for now, we must leave his account and examine several other testimonies, namely that of myself, then Miss Mina Murray, an assistant schoolmistress, and that of my poor friend, Miss Lucy Westenra who, at the time in which my fiancé was undergoing his trials in Transylvania, I was visiting in the apparently more decorous surroundings of the little Yorkshire town of Whitby. Well, if you truly be worth this terrific hike, my dear, I have to say that such vigorous activity scarcely seems to me to be altogether ladylike. Nonsense. We're upon the cusp of a new century. We shall do precisely as we please. Now, I've heard that the vantage point of the ocean with which this relatively mild incline will provide us is quite unparalleled. I do admire you, you know. 
Many would not be so bold in such circumstances. Ah, oh, there's no need to say so. But you are bearing up remarkably well. Oh, I'm sure that nothing too serious can have befallen Jonathan. It is not a part of the world which has yet discovered our swift means of communication. All is probably quite well. Yet, those last few letters did not sound like him at all. Please, I ought not to have mentioned it. But should you need a sympathetic ear, I am here for you, always. As am I for you. But let us talk of summer matters. Your dear mother, upon my arrival at the station, hinted in the most delightfully unsubtle fashion that you might shortly have some news for me of a matrimonial nature. Mina, my dear, I have been positively bursting to speak of it, but shall it not distress you with your own fiancé unaccounted for? Nonsense. <laughs> Nothing would gladden my heart more than to hear the fullest and most scandalous account of your adventures. <laughs> It shall distract my thoughts from their more morbid imaginings. Truly, you are an angel. <laughs> now, what my mother said is quite true, for I have indeed received a proposal of marriage. <laughs> How very thrilling. Who is the bold swain in question? In truth, my dear, I have not merely been proposed to once but three separate times by three separate men, all upon the very same day. Goodness, you must tell me everything. Who are these gentlemen, and to which, if any, did you grant your hand? Well, now, let me see. The most awkward part of it is that they are all friends. Well, they could hardly be more different, so I suppose I must be one of their common interests. <laughs> anyway... The first of them is a doctor named Seward. He is only nine and twenty, and he has an immense lunatic asylum near Perfleet, all under his own care. He has a strong jaw and, and a good forehead. Yet I sense he is not for you. Bless the man. He looked so downcast when I told him that for some considerable time now, my heart has belonged to another. I think he wanted to appear at ease, but... He kept playing with a lancet in a way which made me nearly scream. <laughs> Dr. Seward. You seem today, if you will forgive the observation, somewhat at ebb tide. You, you look pale, sir and sorely unrested, as though some great personal disappointment has but lately come upon you. Mr. Renfield, I would thank you to keep your curiosity as to my private life to yourself. Oh, my, my sincerest apologies, Doctor. Yet surely you cannot be too harsh upon a man such as I, who has been cruelly and, and unjustly imprisoned in this fashion. The four walls of this dank cell form at present the parameters of my existence. You can scarcely penalise me for exhibiting a natural curiosity as to certain intimate events in the world outside. You have been in prison, sir, for your own safety and for your well-being. This is a place of healing, not of incarceration for its own sake. <laughs> now, your deductions as to the reasons for my dollar aside, how have you passed your morning? In philosophical inquiry. Oh? I have been thinking, Dr. Seward about the nature of life itself. He sounds a most intriguing man, but I do think you made the right decision. I can hardly imagine you in such a place, the wife of the proprietor, surrounded on all sides by lunatics. In that we are in one accord. So, who was the second suitor? A nice big fellow, an American from Texas. <laughs> Lucy! He's so young and so fresh in his appearance. It seems almost impossible that he's been to so many places and had such adventures. Goodness! And what is this new Achilles name? Quincy. Quincy P. Morris. Barman! Another whiskey! Just keep him coming so I'll tell you to stop. Sir, evidently you're a thirsty man. Maybe I'm drinking to forget. That I could have guessed. But the past is the past. 
Why not forge new and happier memories? With you. Well, precisely what I have in mind. Assuming you have the wherewithal. Thank you, little lady, but no. <laughs> Can I ask why, sir? I'm not accustomed to rejection. Ain't nothing to do with you, but I've been spurned by an angel. Embracing the devil ain't gonna help my heart to heal. <laughs> well, that's as may be, sir, but if you ever change your mind, ask for Flory. I will. <clears throat> Much obliged. One additional word of advice? Yes? No woman's holy angel, nor holy devil either. Instead, we are a complicated mixture of the two. Goodness me, whoever your choice was, my dear, he must be remarkable indeed to have outstripped so manly a man. Oh, Lena, <laughs> do you think me a horrid flirt? Not at all. You can hardly help your innumerable charms and attractions. They are fine men. I would gladly have married them all if only the law should allow such a thing. I do believe even you would have balked at three husbands. <laughs> But keep me in suspense not a moment longer, and tell me the name of your betrothed. Why, it's Arthur, of course. Arthur Homewood. Well, surely I must have spoken of him to you before. Uh, I believe you may have. He is rich, is he not? And titled, and rather handsome also. Oh, he is all three. <laughs> but his is a noble spirit. He adores me. He will make you happy? Well, I'm sure of it. And when might I meet him? Soon, I'm sure, but alas, he has had to return home. His father's very ill. In truth, near to death. My boy, is that you? There in the shadows? Yes, father. I've come home. You have? No doubt to watch me die, so that you might seize the crown ere my body has grown. Father, I have not the slightest notion how you can say such things. I, sh I shall ascribe it to the nature of your illness, and I shall disregard every word. How magnanimous of you, puppy. You must rest, Father. You mustn't allow yourself to become agitated like Do this. Do you know, I heard the most absurd rumour today. One of the servant girls chattered to the other as they made up my fire and believed erroneously that I slumbered. Indeed, Father. They said you had become engaged to that flighty blonde girl, Westenra. I snorted and startled them, and told them that such a thing was impossible, that no son of mine should ever be so foolish. In truth, Father, that rumour is correct in every detail. Lucy and I are to be married. Foolish boy! Foolish pup! Know this... Hear the wisdom of an old man. All passion dies. All lust is extinguished. And all your youthful lechery shall turn to dust and ashes. Lucy was in forgivably high spirits that afternoon. And although I well understood her girlish delight, I fear I found it a little difficult to join in wholeheartedly. How selfish and short-sighted that seems of me now. I wish, rather, I had paid closer attention and fully indulged what was to be almost her last moment of complete and perfect joy. After a time, we reached the brow of the hill, where the view was, as all the guidebooks had stated, simply remarkable. We strolled together, gazing down upon the land and out to the sea beyond, coming at last to a set of ruins and to a row of seats where the weary might rest. And it was as we approached this stretch of promontory that we understood that we were not entirely alone in that high and distant place. Good afternoon to you, young ladies. Good afternoon, sir. Afternoon? And who might you be? The Swales is the name, miss. And might I say how much livelier the scenery has become with two such pretty swans before it. <laughs> I think your observation a little impertinent, Mr. Swales. But I suppose it would be ruder still not to thank you for it. <laughs> a cat may look at a king, miss. A cat may look at a king. <laughs> what are your names, then? I am Miss Mina Murray, and this is my dear friend, Miss Lucy Westenra. Pleasure to make the acquaintance of you both. 
Tell me, Mr. Swales, what was this place? There is surely evidence of some ruined structure here. This was the old church, miss. Burned down many a year ago. Fit now only for starlings and crows. For wayfarers and beggarmen and ancient old sinners like me. This was once a church. Then this place... Where we stand now, it... Was the churchyard, Miss Lucy. Oh. Yes. The dead lie sleeping beneath us. Dear me, what a grisly thought. You'll be saying next that the place is haunted, Mr. Swales. And there are such stories, of course, Miss. Oh. Aren't there always? A white lady seen at midnight, bells ringing, where there ain't been no bells for generations. <laughs> Something stirring in the darkness. <laughs> But I'd set no store by them. The dead are dead, and they have no cause to trouble us. I hope you are right, Mr. Swales. Truly, I do. Mina, whatever is the matter, you've gone quite white. It must have been the walk, the exertion, and my persistent worry. That and... Yes? That and a, and a sudden and inexplicable presentiment that something terrible is about to overwhelm us all. From the Phonograph Diary of Dr. John Seward, July 24th, 1897. The case of Mr. Renfield grows more interesting by the day. He has certain qualities very largely developed. Selfishness, secrecy, and purpose. I wish I could get at the object of the latter. He seems to have some settled scheme of his own, but what that may be I do not yet know. His only redeeming quality is a love of animals though indeed he has such curious turns in it that I sometimes imagine that he is abnormally cruel. His pets are of odd sorts. At first he delighted in catching flies. Then he turned his mind to spiders and kept several very big fellows in a box. The flies he fed to the spiders, and the spiders, after a period of almost a week, he took to feeding to sparrows, which he was somehow able to attract to the bars of his cell. Today... The matter took a still stranger turn. Two visitations, Dr. Seward. Truly, I am honoured. Earlier, you said you had been pondering the meaning of life. I did. And have you reached any conclusions? Only that there is no meaning. Unless that meaning's a joke. You seem a little bitter, Mr. Renfield. Mm, merely rational. For despite your cruel diagnosis, I am, in truth, a rational man. I see how life works, and and I see my place within it. Is that why you collected the flies, and then the spiders, and then the birds? Are you trying to identify some order of predation? <laughs> Doctor, you see an aspect of the truth. In time, you shall see the whole of the design. Indeed. Now, where are your creatures? You seem quite alone in here. The spiders ate the flies, the birds ate the spiders, and I, Dr. Seward, dined well tonight whilst you nursed your shattered heart. Oh. <laughs> I dined on meat and feathers. Dear God. <laughs> and, and now I have a favour to ask of you. You think yourself in any position to do that? Bring me a cat, Doctor. Oh, oh my, but... There's nothing I should not do to get my hands upon a nice, sleek, juicy cat. Mr. Swales. Miss Mina. How are you today? Oh, still, I fear, a little troubled in my mind. I see that. And Miss Lucy? Oh, quite the opposite. All sunshine and anticipation. She is a warm-natured girl. She is. And you, Mr. Swales? How are you faring? You seem a little sombre. <laughs> I'm old, Miss Mina. Me bones ache. If that is true, I can assure you that you show not the least sign of it. You're trying to flatter me. <laughs> yes, I suppose I am. There's something in the atmosphere. You sense it? A stirring, the approach of a storm and something else. You see out there, against the horizon, the ship? Oh dear me, yes. I do see it now. What is she, a schooner? Russian, by the look of her. But see how she's moving. 
tucking wildly from side to side, heading for the rocks. What extraordinary motion. Whatever can be the cause, do you think? It is as if no one's behind the wheel at all. Or at least, no one living. A momentary lapse, surely. The, the captain will rectify matters. I've been watching her for hours. It's growing worse, but the ship's drawing ever closer. It sounds as though the storm is almost upon us. Mr. Swales, I shall walk you home. I think we must hurry, unless we want to get soaked to our skins. Thank you. I'd be much obliged. <laughs> you know, I'm very glad to have met you again. Before the end. I'm sure there's no need for talk of that nature. Perhaps. But last night I had a terrible dream. And he's been following me all day. Mr. Swales, I am shocked. I would not have thought you capable of setting such store by mere fantasies. Miss Mina, I dreamt that tonight will be the last sleep of my long life. All that evening, the storm went on. One of the worst that had ever been put in record. Whitby shrouded in sea mist as the heavens raged. Lucy and I stayed indoors, huddled together around the fire in our little parlour. In the morning, when the thunder had died and the rain had stopped, there was not the sense, as one often experiences, of renewal. Rather, we felt as though some threshold had been crossed, as if we had passed into a new stage of that nightmare which was shortly to engulf us all. As for the reason of why this should have been so, these next words shall explain. From the logbook of the Demeter. These are the words of the captain. 6th July. We finished taking in cargo, including 50 sealed boxes. What they contain, I cannot be certain. East wind, fresh. Crew, five hands, two mates, cook, and myself. 11th July. At dawn, we entered Bosphorus, boarded by Turkish customs officers. All correct. Underway at 4 p.m. 12th July. Through Dardanelle, a dock passed into Archipelago. 13th July, past Cape Matapan. Crew dissatisfied about something, seemed scared, but would not speak out. 14th July, somewhat anxious about crew. Men, all steady fellows who sailed with me before, mate could not make out what was wrong. They told him only that there was something and crossed themselves. 16th July, mate reports that one of the crew, Petrovsky, was missing. Could not account for it. Men downcast. 18th July. Olgeren came to my cabin and confided to me. He thought there was a strange man aboard. He said that in his watch he had been sheltering behind the deckhouse when he saw a tall, thin stranger. I ordered a thorough search, but we found nothing. 24th July. There seems some doom over the ship. Already we are a hand short. We entered the Bay of Biscay with wild weather ahead, yet last night another man was lost, crew all in a panic of fear. 28th July, four days in hell, caught in a maelstrom. Men worn out. 29th July, another tragedy. When the morning watch came on deck, we could find no one except the steersman. Outcry and thorough search, nothing. 30th July, approaching England, exhausted. Only self and mate on two hands left. 1st August, two days of fog. We are drifting towards some terrible doom. Men are beyond fear, working stolidly and patiently, their minds made up to the worst. 2nd August, woke from a few minutes sleep by hearing a cry. Rushed on deck and ran against mate. No sign of men on watch. One more gone. Lord help us. 3rd August, at midnight I went to relieve the man at the wheel, but when I got to it I found no one there. It is nearly all over. Earlier tonight, the mate conducted a final search. This time he found something, for, with a wild cry, he threw himself into the sea. I am alone. Or I think, not quite alone. 4th of August. I have seen him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump. Better to die like a sailor in blue water. But I am the captain, and I must not leave my ship. I shall lash my hands to the wheel, and I shall see the Demeter into port. I 
shadows! Reveal yourself! Captain, my friend, I thought it time we were formally introduced before we reached the finish of it. What are you, you devil? And you have slaughtered all of my men! Your crew have provided good sustenance for which you have my thanks. I showed them as much mercy as I could. Oh, you know nothing of mercy, demon! Fiend! In truth, I know a good deal more of that emotion than you might now choose to believe. I think I shall explore it further when we arrive in my new home. What business have you in England? I have been old for long enough. It is time now to be young once more. And they're better to enjoy my second youth than in this greatest nation of the new age. I shall be as once I was, and I shall drink deep of all the pleasures of the coming century. Whereas you, Captain, you shall feed the bones. No! No, keep back! You keep back! No! Ah! 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 Ah!